Hi there, I'm Dave Anthony, and this is the Garage to Stadiums podcast. On each episode, we tell you the story of how one of our music legends rose from obscurity to fame and play some of the songs that marked that journey. Welcome to Garage to Stadiums. Today's story is about the band Rush. Rush is a Canadian band hailing from Toronto, Canada, and consists of lead singer Getty Lee, guitarist Alex Lifeson, and drummer Neil Peart. And this is a band known for its loyal legion of fans worldwide, attracted to the precision musicianship of this band, whether on record or in concert. Rush is third behind only the Beatles and the Rolling Stones in number of consecutive gold or platinum albums. And to talk about Rush and its journey is Sam Dunn, an award-winning documentary filmmaker. Sam's first film, Metal, A Headbanger's Journey, premiered at the Toronto International Film Festival in 2005 and has become the definitive documentary on heavy metal music and culture. He's also won the prestigious 2016 Peabody Award and International Emmy Award for his work on the Netflix original series, Hip Hop Evolution. Some of the bands that Sam's covered in his docs include ZZ Top, Iron Maiden, and Alice Cooper. Sam's documentary, entitled Rush Beyond the Lighted Stage, made its debut at the 2010 Tribeca Film Festival, where it earned the 2010 Audience Award. The film was also nominated for Best Long Form Music Video at the 53rd Grammy Awards and features an array of rock luminaries commenting on the band Rush. Sam, welcome to Garage to Stadiums. Thank you, Dave. Pleasure to be here. All right. Let's first talk, Sam, about Banger Films and your incredible array of uh, projects, films, etc. What was the uh, inspiration to start Banger? Well, I co-founded Banger with my business partner, uh, Scott McFadgen, in 2004. Four. And it all began with an insane idea, which was that a smart, in-depth documentary should and could be made about heavy metal music and culture, which at that time, for many people, seemed like an absurd idea. Uh, but uh, lo and behold, took us three years to raise the money, two years to make the film. And the film premiered at TIFF 2005 and basically started us on this path of making documentaries and series, firstly with big rock and metal music artists like Rush and Alice Cooper and Iron Maiden and others, and then pivoting into doing series on genres in metal, hip-hop, K-pop, pop, and on. So it started with that idea that film about a style of music that's pretty polarizing could be done in a way that could both be attractive to the fans who love and know the music and accessible enough that it could appeal to a broader audience. We realized, well, if guys like Getty or Tony Iommi of Black Sabbath or Bruce Dickinson of Iron Maiden or Alice Cooper are appreciating the way we're approaching this, then, well, Maybe there's opportunities to tell their their stories. So, you know, what are the bands from that first film that really deserve the big story? And 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 Rush was right at the top of the list. That's so cool. That first uh, low budget film you guys did that was so successful almost was a sampler pack for what was about to come through the entire career. Um, and taking that point, you feature a number of rock luminaries in the uh, Rush documentary. Rush Beyond 
the lighted stage. Uh, it's it's an incredible array of people that are in this one. Gene Simmons of Kiss, Billy Corgan, Smashing Pumpkins, Kurt Hammett, Metallica, Trent Reznor, Nine Inch Nails, Taylor Hawkins, Foo Fighters. I mean, a wide range of, of genres even in that guest list. And so while Rush was not a band that was loved by the critics, it's incredible the effusive praise that all of these guys heap onto Rush. What was the common view that, you know, they had of of Rush? Well, I think for those musicians, there's two things. One is just the undeniable musical prowess and talent of that band. So, you know, many, many a young person grows up wanting to be the next Neil Peart, wanting to be the next Getty Lee, and wanting to be the next Alice Lifeson. So there's that musical side of it that just appeals to young people who just want to become the best at their instrument that they possibly can. And that's very powerful. And it was powerful for me, even though I didn't go on to be a professional musician, I grew up playing the bass guitar and I sat in my bedroom hitting, you know, stop, rewind, play, stop, rewind, play on my cassette deck, trying to learn how to play Getty Lee parts. So I can, I could hundred percent right. relate to that. I think the other big piece is Rush have had a very unique ability to do their own thing and not bow, uh, not accommodate the wishes of the mainstream, the wishes of commercial interests, etc. And they are one of those very rare artists who have had long careers and have completely done it their own way all the way through. Yeah, And I don't think there's a lot of artists that tick that box. I mean, Bowie would be an obvious other example, and there's probably others as well. But in the rock world, Rush occupy a very unique place in that they they just said no to any outside influence on how they were going to make their music, how long the songs were going to be, how how elaborate and ornate their lyrical content was going to be, etc. And and I think for musicians that you mentioned, that's like the gold standard. Yeah, that's a great point. The the point about the musicianship in particular. Um, if anyone in the audience is is uh, seen Rush live, I mean, this is a note for note band. When you see these guys, it's like listening. You're, you're you've got the crowd with you, which is great. But man, these guys are not just phoning it in. This is note for note playing of these awesome songs. And uh, that certainly came through uh, when you talk to those guys. Let's go back to the beginning. Where did the guys in Rush, Alex Lyson, Getty Lee, Neil Peart, where did they grow up? What was their family life like? Getty and Alex uh, were the sons of immigrant families that that grew up in the neighborhood uh, Willowdale in the north of, of Toronto, which at that time, as I understand, was a brand new suburb um, in the 50s and 60s. You know, you go any north of any further north of Willowdale and it was farmland, which of course, for those of people that know the geography of the greater Toronto area, that that's no longer the case. The suburban sprawl goes on for kilometers beyond that now. But that was the neighborhood that they grew up, I suppose, in many ways, kind of a classic post-war, um, largely immigrant uh, neighborhood. Neil 
uh, quite differently, grew up in the farmlands of of southern Ontario. Uh, his father ran a uh, farm equipment dealership, uh, and so his upbringing was was quite different in in a lot of ways than 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 Getty and Alex's. Yeah, didn't Getty's parents meet in a concentration camp during the war and? eventually survived, came to Canada, and then they opened a convenience store and his dad died at an early age. And in fact, Getty's name, Getty Lee, comes from his real name, which is Gary Weinrib. And his Polish mother had a difficult time saying Gary, and it came out as Getty. And then of course, his uh, school friends started calling him Getty and it stuck. And when he was looking for a stage name, he, in fact, combined his middle name, Lee, with uh, that moniker, Getty, and came up with Getty Lee. When did, where did they start first playing? Like, how old were they? Well, Getty and Alex met in junior high school, uh, I think around the age of 14 or 15. Wow. Their first shows were in, you know, church basements, community hall basements, probably a few, you know, high school parties, in in and around you know the northern Toronto suburban area, that's they really cut their teeth. These guys are uh, nineteen or twenty, and they're in the. And it's in the early seventies. They're playing bars six nights a week in Toronto. I mean, they can barely get into bars, but they're in there playing six nights a week, and something incredible happens. And tell us about what that was and how it broke Rush into the next level. Yeah, well the big breakthrough moment um that that really put Rush into a much bigger conversation was uh the result of a of a woman named Donna Halper based who was a DJ in 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 Cleveland um who played working man on the radio. Right. And the short version of the story is the the phone didn't stop ringing. I think the joke goes, you know, is, you know, is that, you know, is that the new Led Zeppelin song? Yeah. The name started to grow and it, it, it sort of paved the way then for the band to start touring throughout that, that area of the United States. And it was really that radio combined with those early touring days that, that, that really broke, uh, that really broke Rush. You can see why working man would work in a working class blue collar town like Cleveland was in the 1970s. In fact, Sam, that opening riff, man, that sounds like an industrial machine in a factory. Yeah, it's uh, that's a super heavy song. You know, that's emblematic of Rush, as we were talking about earlier, of really being inspired by 
the Zeppelins and the Who's and that that late '60s, early seven, early '70s rock sound, right? Like that's where that song right. is coming from. It's about you know, it's probably the most straightforward Rush tune ever created. We all know that from there. Yeah. They 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 go off on a on a on a vast musical adventure into much more experimental territory. But you know that work that working man tune is about as bread and butter as it gets for Rush. So imagine you know for those of you listening who have kids or maybe you're this age, but they're 19 or 20, and this song breaks as Sam said the Midwest. They're put on the opening act circuit for bands like. Kiss and Manfred Mann and Uriah Heep and you're 20 years old. Now you're playing not the bars in Toronto, but 10 to 15,000 people every night. It's just incredible. As you say, they really started to hit their stride in those early days of touring, touring the Midwest and, you know, playing loud, heavy, aggressive, uh, musically dense uh, rock music. But they were the furthest thing from <laughs> what you'd expect a band who plays that music to be like, you know, and that's what Jane gets at. Gene gets at in our film is, you know, these guys were not out partying and, and hanging out with, with, with girls. It's Gene jokes. I think he says, you know, they were in their rooms, hotel rooms, reading books. You know? <laughs> <laughs> You know, that just gets to the uniqueness of this band. In many ways, on the surface, they were another, you know, they were another 70s hard rock band, but they were they were different and they were setting their sights. Ultimately, we now know on far more ambitious and, and frankly, kind of intellectual territory when it comes to what they wanted to do uh, with with their music. How would you describe each of Getty, Neil, and Alex in terms of personalities? Oh, wow. That's a great question. In as small a nutshell as I can put them in, I mean, you know, Getty, firstly, my sense of Getty is that he's um, tremendously ambitious, highly, a highly motivated individual to understand and absorb as much of the world around him as he possibly can. Right. Right. So he's very driven to be the best possible bass player he can be. He's very driven to know as much as he can about baseball. He's driven to know as much as he can about wine and photography and, 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 and on and on. So that's Getty to me. Alex is probably the funniest person I've ever met, hands down. And it's something that a lot of people don't know about. Alex. Wow. The funniest guy you've ever met. That's saying something. I understand Alex's real name is Alex Zavodjinovic, and his parents emigrated from Yugoslavia, the former Yugoslavia. And of course, he changed his name to Alex Lifeson for the purposes of touring with Rush. Alex, you know, my impression of Alex is that he is firstly a fantastic guitar player plays a very interesting role in that band musically because Getty and Neil are such busy note dance players and Alex and Alex Alex is underrated as a guitar player in my mind. I think Alex brings frankly like a lot of the taste to to Rush's music. Um 
he's the one in many ways, and people often probably won't see it this way, that's that's kind of brave enough to sit back and just layer on what needs to be layered on to the music, which I really ad- admire him for. And I don't think he gets enough credit for that because frankly, if he was ripping on as many notes as the other two, I don't know if Rush's music would be nearly as listenable as it, as it is. Neil, rest in peace. Yeah. The poet in, in a drummer, in drummer's clothing, you know, um, he's a deep intellectual, he's a deep reader. He's a deep observer of the world around him. I speak in the present tense because I feel like he's still here because of the legacy of music that he's left behind, right? So absolutely, he, um, absolutely, he is. He's probably got the biggest brain of any musician I've had the opportunity to meet, and I've interviewed hundreds and hundreds of musicians over the last twenty years. So Neil, Neil is that he is. He is a. Uh, a deep intellectual, a lyricist, and probably the, if not one of the m- best rock drummers ever to walk the planet. Yeah. He definitively comes up in everyone's list, it seems. Uh, there's been a number of significant challenges the band ha- has faced. After that initial success with Working Man from watching the film, you know, they put out a couple of albums that are not that well received after that album, that first album that the Cleveland station had discovered. And the crowds start to dwindle to show up to see these guys. And what happens next is really interesting and resulted in a turning point. Effectively, it sounds like the record company sort of put these guys up against the wall and said, okay, guys, this is it. Uh, what's it going to be? Because we need something to move some product here. And the band has an interesting response. Yeah, well, I think this arguably is probably the most important moment in Rush's career. After that initial album, their music gets increasingly experimental and they start really pushing themselves as musicians. Um, importantly, you know, the original drummer, John Rutsey, who was on the first Rush album, uh, leaves the band and he's replaced by Neil on the second record, which is an enormously m- important moment in this band's story, of course, because it kind of opens this vast opportunity to kind of basically create whatever they want because Neil is so tremendously talented on the drums. But what happens is by the time they get to the album Caress of Steel, which, you know, I think Getty jokes in the film, I think we were pretty high when we made that record, (laughs) um, is that they've really pushed themselves to the outer limits of experimentation and, and progressive rock to the point where maybe, you know, they're starting to push it too far and 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 there's no semblance, as you say, of a working man. The band that made Working Man several years earlier it seems to have left the building. And they get put under pressure by the label. You know, the label is saying things like, We want a hit, we want we can you guys like put something like a bad company song together? <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is the where the label's at at that time. Yeah. And keep in mind these guys are still what, twenty one probably at the time. Like, I mean, you you'd think that the record company says jump and a 21 year old's going to go, uh, yes, I will deliver, sir. 
Yeah, they're they're right in their early early twenties. This is nineteen seventy five, uh, I believe. Progressive uh, Steel comes out. Anyway, the the most important word <laughs> was what Rush said to the record label, and they said no, and they set their sights on creating, which still to this day um, is probably the most important record in the story of Rush, not necessarily the most commercially successful, but of course that album is 2112. Right. And 2112 still stands as one of the most ambitious and successful, which is key, rock albums of all time. You know, famously, one side of the record is one song including several movements a la a classical uh, composition. And the other important thing that happens, of course, is not only that they say no, but the audience says yes in response to that music. And this is the moment when Rush earns their complete musical freedom right? for the rest of their career. From now on, Rush does things the way they want to, and that's the way it's going to be. Uh, and so that's you know that's why Twenty One Twelve is such an important album in in the Rush story. goes on to release a trio of albums that puts them into the top rock acts of the late 70s as it yields songs like Closer to the Heart was followed by another key song, Spirit of Radio.
Sam, next comes kind of the killer pinnacle album in 1981 when the guys are still like they're in their late 20s and and they've got all the success. But man, this next album uh, is the one that if you were in high school at the time, everybody talked about this album, the songs from it, which we're going to play a couple of Tom Sawyer, Limelight. Tell us about that incredible album, Moving Pictures. Like, what what did it do for this band? Well, Moving Pictures, of course, stands as, you know, the most well-known album uh, by Rush um, to this day. This is the moment when they start to draw on other musical influences um, than the kind of classic rock and early heavy metal. The songs get shorter. Uh, they get a little leaner, if you will. Um, the, the keyboards become a bigger part of the actual bedrock of the, of the songs. It's not just guitar riffs that are driving music anymore. Um, and, you know, you alluded to the fact that, you know, after this, after what they had done on 2112, they pushed themselves even further out into the outer reaches of, of progressive rock, particularly on the album Hemispheres and songs like Livia Strangiato, where they were now creating songs that they could barely even pull off in the studio. Like they'd kind of, the, 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 you know, the fingers were bleeding to the point where they're like, okay, you know, let's take the foot off the gas here. And that, and that's, I guess that speaks to the course correction that they constantly seem to do. They go down a path, they course correct to place these guys in any genre is difficult because they keep adapting. Yeah. And so, you know, the songs you mentioned, like Closer to the Heart, Spirit of Radio, and perhaps most famously, Tom Sawyer, you know, are are products of that new mentality that Rush is bringing to their music. You know, leaner, shorter, uh, more direct, um, less meandering, less experimental, all of that kind of stuff. And, you know, as Neil says in our documentary, all of a sudden, you had kids walking down the high school halls saying, hey, have you heard the new Rush song? Have you got the new Rush album? And as I think he puts it, you know, it's like, that's actually the moment and but possibly the only moment that it's been quote unquote cool to love, to love Rush, right? right. Because this is, those songs that I mentioned are like getting heavy, heavy, heavy rotation on rock radio. And if you've got a radio on in 1981, you're pretty much guaranteed to hear those songs. Yeah. So yeah, Moving Pictures is the next step forward because it's it's the moment when Rush becomes a full-on popular band in the mainstream. We just heard the song Tom Sawyer, the incredible lyrics of Neil Peart, the uh, synthesizers of Getty, uh, Alex, as you said, filling it in and making it sort of palatable. That song was everywhere in that era. And uh, I've even heard the Foo Fighters sing that song. They love that song. 
if you want to see a funny version of the song Tom Sawyer, check out the movie I Love You Man starring Paul Rudd and Jason Segel. There's a hilarious scene where they both ride together on one Vespa singing the tune. And what's interesting, there's another tune that I think is a clue to the personalities in this band, in particular, Neil, and that song's Limelight. This signals a transformation or a shift in the subject matter of Neil's lyrics. You know, for many, many albums, the subject matter has been fantastical, very literary, very lofty uh, lyrical matter. Now I think it's almost like the lyrics are becoming more earthly and, 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 and autobiographical. They start to become more about what's going on around them or in their own lives. And specifically Limelight really kind of echoes what we talked about earlier, which is that th this is not a band that does what they do because they want all of the trappings that usually come with being a rock star. In fact, they're in many ways the complete uh, opposite of that, particularly Neil, who is making this music principally because he wants to make the music. And this may seem like a kind of minutia anecdote, but I think it speaks to something larger that when they recorded albums, like Neil's favorite part was rehearsing and putting the songs together. And then as soon as he laid the track down in the studio, it's like, I'm done. It was Getty and Alex, and as far as I understand, largely Getty who would spend days and days and days in the studio tweaking and perfecting and, and working on the nuances of the, the sound and the production and the levels and all of that stuff. It's the doing of the music that's most important and everything else around it is kind of uninteresting or un, uninspiring to him. And I think that that's kind of what Limelight is getting at in my view. Where would you say Rush sits, Sam, in music history? What will they be remembered for? You know, the documentary does a good job of telling what others thought, but where where do you think they, they sit? It's funny, Gene Simmons says, people always go, what are they? Are they this? Are they that? Are they? And he goes, they're just Rush, man. I mean, on one hand, I think Rush will always be known as this band that just had the guts to push music as far as it could be pushed within the rock context, you know, uh, such tremendous musical ambition. I think the part of Rush that doesn't get highlighted enough, and I think really what they need should be recognized for uh, now and into the future is, is, is actually tremendous integrity and tremendous work ethic. Because I've had the, you know, the, the 
the the wonderful opportunity to spend time with them, um, especially recently with Getty. These guys work very very hard, and I and and it's maybe a mundane answer, but it's an it's it's an answer that isn't given very often because maybe it's not that sexy, it's not that appealing, but there's a tremendous amount of grit. There's a tremendous amount of kind of old fashioned working class, like this is what we do for a living. And there's also a tremendous business acumen that doesn't get talked about very often either. That That's interesting. That's interesting. Made a lot of really good decisions along the way. It's a band that was very well managed uh, as well. And I don't think it's those aspects of the band's career that get highlighted enough, but as I've spent more time with them and, and, and had a chance to have hindsight on working with them on the, on the documentary now, I think it's, it's, it's those aspects, the work ethic, the business acumen and the integrity that is really what made Rush who they are. That's an interesting answer. You know, it really speaks to these bands are really entrepreneurs at the end of the day, and they're on this journey where they have to adapt and they have to, you know, adapt to the market conditions. They have to do their thing. They have to put in the work. And, you know, in terms of success, it's interesting. Well, the critics may have said, well, you know, the prog rock, progressive rock, whatever, you know, the fans vote with uh, their dollars and rush as we said at the beginning, has the third most consecutive gold platinum studio albums by a rock band, topped only by the Beatles and the Stones. So that's called a successful business. 40 million albums sold is estimate. If you wanted to give the folks listening your all-time three picks, I know it's hard that they can choose to listen to. Now, we'll have a more... Uh, in-depth garage to stadiums playlist for for folks at our website but i want to hear the sam dunn three picks that he would say um reflect rush to him it's a big catalog dave <laughs> I, <know. laughs> I would pick a, i'd like to pick a few songs that span across the, the the catalog the first song that comes to mind is an instrumental and it's la via strangiato off of hemispheres Alex's guitar solo in that song, I think, is one of the most beautiful parts of any um, Rush song um, and maybe doesn't talk about enough. Yeah, people may not have listened to that. That may be a lesser known uh, song. Which has always been um, one of my favorite Rush tunes. Um, it just represents Rush at the, the peak. So, so many songs to choose from, but a, a song I'd like to pick is uh, also a song that maybe doesn't get talked about much. It's off of Moving Pictures, but it's the last song on the album called Vital Signs. Yes, that's and a cool tune. 
I didn't know any, I didn't know anyone else knew that song, so I'm just well, happy to hear it. I may be biased because I'm a massive police fan, and this is their most obvious tip of the hat to the police that you could possibly imagine. A It's just such a shift in their their sound, and I think they pull it off really, really well. Um, it's got that kind of lean power trio vibe to it, and it's got beautiful um, the the vocal work on that song. I think is beautiful. You know, people talk about Tom Sawyer and Limelight and Red Barchetta and all the other songs off that album, but the last track, Vital Signs, is tremendous, and I think it speaks to the fact that that's why that album is so incredible is because all of the songs on that album are so strong. So yeah, Vital Signs would be my my other pick. I'd like I pick a song off the album Counterparts and this is in the 90s when after moving into a very keyboard heavy direction in the band's yeah. career uh another another move a little too far it seemed well, and then they, they kind of reeled it back in. They they they, they returned to a much more rock feel on counterparts and I've always loved the opening track animate on that on that album Animate, I think, is a song that kind of represents Rush into the 90s, which doesn't get talked about uh, very much. But yeah, it's always been a favorite of mine. Sam, this is kind of our final question. Tell us a little bit about the latest project that Banger Films has been working on. Yeah, well, we have a lot of shows in, in production or in development at Banger, which um, is too early to mention. But we do have a show on Paramount Plus uh, that stars Getty Lee from Rush. And the title of the show is perhaps the longest title in the history of television, which of course is apropos because it's about a member of Rush and it's called Getty Lee Asks Our Bass Players Human Too. And essentially it's a, it's a travel show where each episode Getty goes to meet with one of his favorite uh, bassists um, and spends time talking about a bit about music and a bit about the bass, but it's it's largely about what these bassists do in their off time. Uh, and so the episodes are on Les Claypool from Primus, Rob Trujillo from Metallica, Chris Novoselic of Nirvana, and Melissa Aftamar, who played bass in Hole and Smashing Pumpkins. Uh, so it's a it's a fun travel show with Getty that we're super proud of, and I think shows a side of Getty which is beyond the masterful bass playing and the music side of him and really shows him as just a, a really interesting person that has infinite curiosity about the world around him. I really appreciate this. Thank you, Dave. Pleasure to be here. 
Special thanks to Sam, our guest today, who produced and directed Rush Beyond the Lighted Stage. And some closing notes on Rush. You can catch the Rush induction into the Rock and Hall of Fame on YouTube. The Foo Fighters inducted them, and there's a great video of Dave Grohl and Taylor Hawkins of the Foos playing that 2112 piece, complete with 70s wigs and rock outfits. If you want some recent clips of Rush playing without Neil Peart, there is that video of them playing the Taylor Hawkins tribute with Dave Grohl and also Chad Smith of the Chili Peppers taking turns on the drums, playing 2112 and Working Man, respectively. And finally, if you want to hear, in my opinion, one Rush album that demonstrates the incredible musicianship of this three-piece band, I'd recommend you stream the album Moving Pictures, widely considered their best album and the one that led to their stadium success. For those of you who want the Garage to Stadium definitive playlist of Rush, go to our website, garagetostadiums.com, where we've posted that playlist, including Sam's three picks and the episode's transcripts. While there, you can see our other episodes, and we hope you enjoyed our show today. Special thanks to our guest Sam Dunn of Banger Films and our producer Reese Waters. I'm Dave Anthony, and you've been listening to Garage to Stadiums, another Blast Furnace Labs production. See you next time for another Garage to Stadium story. This has been a Podstarter production. production.